Okay, if you've got a Bible, grab it. We're in Philippians chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles in the pews or in the chairs, it's on page 636. And before we read God's Word together, Anna just reminded me that, hey, mamas and dads, if you're going to get your kiddos after the service, be super careful because the walkway between this building and where the kids are is like lookout slick. So be very careful walking out there. Philippians chapter 2. I know we've been up and down a lot this morning, but let's stand together as you read this passage as Brent comes to preach God's word for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thanks, Blake. Man, thank you all for having me again. This is the second time in about five weeks. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Brent Corbin. Uh, I work with Reformed University Fellowship, which is the college ministry of the denomination that Trinity is a part of, the Presbyterian Church in America. And I work at the University of Tulsa, and we have folks from uh, TCC and a couple other local uh, college universities coming to be with us. So it's great to be with you all again. Um, can I hold out one more week for some Christmas illustrations? Can we do that? Great. Because uh, I have no other illustration. Um, let's see. I guess two weeks ago now, we, uh, my family, my wife Sarah, and we have three little girls, uh, four, two, and newborn, and most of them are sick, and so no, not with us this morning. But uh, we traveled down to Baton Rouge. Uh, Louisiana, where she is from, and we were with her family, her parents, and several of her siblings were there, and we had this great joy on Christmas morning of uh, coming downstairs. Uh, they have this tradition where her parents play a song really loudly, and um, it's a Rich Mullins song. You gotta get up, you gotta get up, it's Christmas morning, and we all ran downstairs, and the kids, you know, run into this room full of uh, presents, and it was great, and they were going cra crazy. That was, the, that was the Santa room, right? That's where uh, all of Santa's gifts were that he brought, and so for the Corbin kids, we had a telescope. I don't know why, uh, but the kids wanted a telescope and a little chalkboard thing, 
and several other things. And uh, it was great, and we were all really excited, and they were playing. And then Sarah's parents announced that there was another room of toys <laughs> because it was a room where uh, the grandparents, they wanted to give the kids toys too. And so we opened some doors, and there was room number two. Well, the passage this morning, uh, you're thinking, Brent, Shane preached this passage last week. Uh, he did. He preached verses 1 through 11 last week, and we're going to focus on 12 and 13 this morning. Verses 1 through 11 in this passage are like room 1, that you come down and you see uh, the Apostle Paul unfolding the beauty of what Jesus did in Jesus' coming down and his humiliation. Is something exploding, or is that just me? Okay, great. Um, uh, Jesus came down from heaven and became incarnate, one of us, uh, ultimately so that he might accomplish redemption uh, on behalf of his people. In verses 12 and 13 are kind of a, a second room. Now what do we do in light of that? And you see that with the word therefore in verse 12. And Paul goes on to talk about in, in light of this tremendous uh, accomplishment of salvation that Jesus has done for us, now what? what? What do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we see the Apostle Paul looks at his people, uh, his um, readers here in Philippi, and says, continue on in that grace which you have received. Grow up in the grace that has redeemed you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in other words, in reverence and awe of the Lord who has saved you. Grow up in that grace. Let that uh, power you as you move forward. And the three things we're going to look at in regard to growing in grace. First is the motor for the growth in grace. Second, we're going to look at a couple of the mechanics of growing in grace. What it looks like to actually grow as a Christian. And lastly, what motivates us to do that? What motivates us to do that? So first... In verse 13, let's look at the motor for growth in grace. Look, Paul says that the, the bedrock principle in the Christian life, if you are to have hope of ever changing, of ever getting past things that you want to get past, of ever stopping to do things you want to stop, or starting to do things that you have never begun, Paul gives us the engine, the power to fuel and to, to move us into growing and changing in verse 13. He says, on the heels of him saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he gives us this great promise, and he says, for God is at work in you. So he says, yes, work out your salvation, this, this command, this imperative, but he backs that up with this tremendous, powerful promise of God by saying, for God is already at work in you. He is already at work. The motor is already running. So that means that even if 2013 was a spiritual low for you, a, a failure maybe as a whole, or maybe if you just kind of come out of last year with this, ugh, that was not the year I wanted, whatever sense you feel that, Paul is saying, cheer up. God is not a failure. God is at work. His motor is running in you. He is already doing something. And this, this really is so wonderful. This is the equivalent of if you are an NFL player and you have not been playing this year, you've been a free agent who did not get picked up, 
and you've literally been sitting at your home, maybe doing some workouts during the week, this is the equivalent of the Denver Broncos calling you right now and saying, hey, we need you this afternoon in our game. Or we need you, we need you next week. We're going to pick you up. Because look, the Denver Broncos have already been winning. They are winning, and they are going to win. You are jumping on the freight train headed to glory. Because it's already happening. They are already winning. Uh, last week for Christmas, one of Sarah's sisters uh, gave me this gift, which was great. It was a homemade Christmas gift. Um, and what it was is uh, a, this little elastic band, kind of a little elastic band with these hand-sewn, I'm going to say the word booty because I don't know what else to say, like these little booty, little mitten-looking things on top of this elastic band. And I didn't know what they were, and so I had to ask my wife, Sarah, what is this? Well, what you do is you slip the elastic band on top of your shoes, and for a dad with three girls, it quickly became, uh, started to see what's happening here, there are little booties that your daughters slip their feet in, so you can teach them how to dance, and they can dance on your feet. <laughs> By Paul, when Paul is saying that God is already at work in you, he's saying, look, God is already dancing around in your life. He's already moving into those places in your life that have been dark and maybe which you thought you're too far gone. And he's saying, slip your feet into these little pouches here. Come and see how I'm at work. And he's inviting us into the dance of renewal that he's already doing in us. God is at work in you. He's already at work in you, Paul is saying. But the truth about that, about that reality is that we fight it. We fight the fact that God is at work in us because we're lazy. We sometimes just want to give up. Sometimes when confronted with, with giving in to something that we know is sinful, we do it just because it's fun. <laughs> I mean, look, we have to acknowledge that. Sin is attractive. Doing things contrary to what God wants for us is appealing oftentimes. We're lazy. And I actually think that Paul anticipates some of this in his readers. Because in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He's saying, look, these are people who have, who have been doing well in some sense. He's saying, not only now in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's kind of building into his model and his argument that, that when he leaves them, and whenever he's not away and not writing them, that they're going to be tempted to fall back and to slip back into old patterns. And he encourages them by saying, God is at work in you. Don't give up. You can change. You can be different. And so when, when you're laboring into this new year with your uh, resolutions, if you're not cynical like me, you actually made resolutions and you're into March, and you're wanting to read the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, good grief, what's happening? Press on. God is at work in you. He's at work in that book in amazing ways. If you don't understand it, just ask Blake. He'll walk you right through it every verse. Won't you, Blake? Every morning, 5 a.m. <laughs> yes. Uh, look, God is at work. The motor is still running even when we are discouraged or want to give up. Um, in his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, uh, Jack Miller, who is a great pastor, uh, practical theologian, uh, missionary, he has this quote, which I think is fantastic. 
as he talks about how God works in us and what this growth and grace looks like. And he says that Jesus knocks at the front door of our hearts. Okay, that's like, you know, when we, when we know there's something we ought to do, when we see that we ought to follow Jesus in this certain way, Jesus knocks at the front door of our hearts. In response, we do not immediately open the door. We don't always want to follow Jesus for all the reasons what I've just said. Instead, we quickly put locks on the door. Now we're talking. We push furniture up against it. The Lord then sends the Holy Spirit to slip in the back door. And the Holy Spirit goes down into the basement where he turns up the heat and sets little fires until the rising heat forces us to remove the barriers and open the front door and let Christ in. I believe the Lord keeps right on using this backdoor approach in our growth and grace. I think that's true. It's true for me, and perhaps it's true for you, that I know the things I ought to do or the things I ought not to do, stop doing. And there are a lot of times when I don't readily do those things. But I also know that that the Lord brings conviction about that because he's already at work in me. And so I can't stop thinking about that thing I should stop doing. It's ever-present. It's like that, that thought that won't go away. And friends, that is God's work in you if you feel that. And you shouldn't be mad at him for that. You should thank him for that. Because what it means is that his spirit is at work in you, setting those little fires, and the heat is rising. And you feel it to that uncomfortable level where you have to do something. You have to have that hard conversation with your wife or your husband. Or you have to look at your parent and tell them the thing that you did. Or you have to be honest with your boss. You have to engage in that. You have to repent of the sin that you've willfully been engaging in for so long. That is God's kindness to you because He's at work in you. So, so the motor which powers your growth and grace as a Christian is the good news that God is already in you. You're joining in Him with what He has already begun. So what are some practical things that that looks like? What, what are some of the mechanics or the inner workings of that? At the end of verse 12b and, and maybe the second half of 13, uh, Paul flows from his promise of God being at work by saying, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So now he's kind of shifting it to us, that God is at work in us so that we can will and work, so that we can do something. Now, I think as good Oklahomans who are, you know, good people, we, we work hard, right? A lot of you grew up perhaps in more rural areas where you had to do stuff around the house to keep up. You had to help dad. You had to help mom. It was part of what you did. So we kind of get the work thing. And so I would guess that if I were talking to you uh, about maybe your resolve as a Christian, what, what you want to do differently or what this year is going to be like for you, you would tell me in response some way that you're going to start working, that you want to start reading the Bible or you want to maybe get up early and pray five mornings a week or, or two mornings a week, whatever that looks like. You would get the work part of it. You want to start coming to church every week. Great. And, and those are all tremendous and viable and worthwhile parts of the Christian life. I want to focus for just a minute on that first thing there because I, intuitively I think we, we miss this. This process of, of the will. What it looks like to will for God's good pleasure. It, 
if we could think of work as the outer, what we kind of do with our hands and what we engage in the, with our outer lives, our will, to will is maybe what we do with our inner lives, with our thoughts, with our hearts, with the way we think about our time. In my favorite hymn, uh, Jesus on my cross have taken, there, there is this great verse which kind of illustrates this very idea of how the Christian life isn't, it is about doing stuff, but it's not only about doing stuff with our hands or with, uh, you know, by getting up early in the morning. It's also this process of what, oh, I'm just going to read it and then we'll talk about it. Uh, Henry Light says, it's kind of this preaching your gospel, the gospel to yourself. So it's, it's someone addressing their soul. It feels weird for us, more normal back then, I guess. It says, soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise up over, <laughs> over, over sin and fear and care. There's joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. And he's saying that, yes, there is joy to be found in doing things, but friends, there is also joy to be found in the Christian life by bearing up under difficulty and trial and seeking to honor God in those moments. Because they will come. They will come in this new year. Difficulty will come. Trial will come. I hope not, but more than likely, death will come to someone you know. Divorce may come to a family member or a friend that you know and it will be hard, and your soul will be burdened. And we have to engage that, that burden, and we have to bear up under that, and we have to follow Jesus in that. And this hymn writer, at least, and I think most of our experience over time would agree with him, that there is joy to be found in living with integrity, in following Jesus through difficult times. That there is still something to do or bear. And I think we forget that much of the Christian life and of God's process, God's process of growing us in grace is just that inner struggle that we feel. You know, it may not be so much doing something, it's just the day-to-day, what do I do, not with the things out there, but with this person in here. Because I don't know about y'all, I'm a professional Christian, right? I mean, I live by preaching and studying the Word and praying with people and talking with people about all this stuff. And y'all, the hardest battles that I fight are right here in my own mind and in my own heart. And so Paul says elsewhere as he's writing some other people in 2 Corinthians, says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what does that look like? For some of y'all, that means you, you need to go to counseling. <laughs> Whether that's with Blake, or if he uh, tells you, hey, you actually need to go see a licensed counselor or a therapist or something like that that may be there. Someone who can help you process what's going on in your life, the things you're doing now, the things you've done in the past, who you want to be. For some of you, that means growing in grace, the mechanics of that may mean that, that you should wake up a little early or commit some time before bed to to just being still and quiet with the Lord so you, can, so you can process who you are and the struggles that you have. 
what the Lord may be doing in you. So you can listen to where God may be lighting those little fires and encouraging you to change and wanting you to change. And the reason that we don't do these things often is because they're so hard. (laughs) They are not fun. There is a reason why when I said the word, uh, you need to go see a counselor, most of you who know you should probably go talk to someone said, I'm not doing that. It's too expensive. It's stupid. I'm going to feel, you know, fluffy or whatever. It's hard. It's not fun. We fight it. We resist it. Because none of us like to ask the why question. (laughs) We like to treat our actions. We like to work. Give me something to do and I'm going to do it. There is a very good reason why churches and pastors and movements that give you five and six reasons and ten reasons to change and five secrets to be a better you and all this stuff, there's a reason that people latch onto that because it's, it's looking up and saying, I can do that. I can check a box. I can do all those five things. But most of us know that those things are, are fairly temporary, that after the five boxes have come and been checked, that there is oftentimes some lasting trouble and difficulty. And that we can't just, just to do stuff is like putting Band-Aid on an infection. It's going to mask it for a little while. We can feel good about the things we're doing for a little while. But if we never get in and treat what's happening within us, it's never going to go away. The infection grows and it gets worse and worse. We all want the changed outer life. We want the fruit of having done something. We want, we want the, the stuff about us to be different, but we don't often want to have to do the hard work of tending the soil of our heart and our mind to will and to work. Uh, Paul Tripp, who's a, well, I guess kind of a famous counselor in christian circles, he says that to, to merely go for the outward stuff, just the doing, the actions, and to never treat the heart to look inside and ask the why. Why do, I, why do I drink so much? Why do I yell at my kids? Why do I work as much as I do? Why am I so angry when my kids make such a mess at the house? Me every single day. Uh, what does that say about me? Why? Why do I do that? And Paul Tripp says that to only treat the outer without, without looking at the inner is like going and taping, taping or stapling fruit on a tree. But yeah, it looks like fruit for a while. It looks pretty for a little while, but it's going to die because it's not connected to life. There's no real lasting power for it to be sustained. And Paul is saying that growing in grace is by being connected to the source of that grace. And by delving in and looking at how God is, is at work in us and asking the why questions about our motivations and our will and how we do that. John Stott said, that holiness is not a condition into which we drift. If you are a Christian, there is work to be done, and we're grateful to Jesus that he has already begun that work in us, and we cooperate with him in it. But holiness is not a condition to which we drift. If you wake up every single day and do nothing, and seek to do nothing in your life, then largely, I think most of us would attest to the fact that not a lot's going to change. We cooperate with what God is doing. So he says, holiness is not a condition into which we drift. Rather, we engage in the process. So a very simple question for you is, are you engaged in the process? 
I don't know what that looks like for you. I, I know some of you this much. <laughs> I know a few of you a little better. So are you engaged in the process? For, for some of you, that may mean, man, it would be a legitimate goal to set just a baby step. Something that is small and attainable. And if you don't know what that looks like, talk to a friend about it. Talk to Blake about it. Just something that, that is attainable. J.I. Packer says, growth in the Christian life is taking the next step. For some of you, engaging in the process means that it's actually time to make a phone call and to cut, out, cut aside the money and set aside the money in your budget to go see a counselor. Where are you engaged in growing up in grace in your life? So are there, there are ways that we join with what God's doing. There, there are things to be done. There are ways to engage our thoughts and our heart and our life. But where in the world would the motivation for that ever come from? <laughs> because most of you are like, that sounds terrible. Why would I want to do any of those things? Well, Paul gives us at the end of 13, he says that we will and that we work for his good pleasure. Another translation that I like says, that to will and to work according to what pleases him. Okay, so what happens in the Christian life is that when you begin to trust Jesus, actually at the point in which someone trusts Christ for forgiveness of sin and to be renewed and restored into relationship with God, Scripture promises us that God takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. So he gives us a new heart, friends, which, is, which isn't set on self-pleasure. Which isn't set on just gaining joy from what pleases me, but is actually set on gaining joy from what pleases God. And so when you seek to do things in your life, and when you seek to change, and you want to, you want to be different, the motivation isn't just, oh, this is going to be awesome for me and I'm going to be a better person on the other side and my wife's going to love me more and my kids are going to not think I'm so terrible. It's that the Father in heaven is smiling at me and I want to enjoy that smile. I want to enjoy his good pleasure, which is already mine through what Jesus has done, but I want to enjoy that. When we were down in Louisiana, uh, I had several conversations with a uh, a family member, it's actually a boyfriend of a family member. Uh, and he is into Kabbalah. <laughs> Anybody know what Kabbalah is? Uh, a couple hands. Madonna's into it. That's the only thing I knew about it. Um, anyway, Kabbalah is this kind of new age mysticism, uh, kind of this Jewishy thing. Again, I, I didn't know anything about it. But I got online that night <laughs> and learned a lot. Um, but as we were talking about it, and he was talking about what Kabbalah is like, it's this kind of spiritual deal and he was saying it's all about you know self self-knowledge and self-fulfillment and self uh what's the word i'm looking for um self-realization self-actualization i didn't i still don't know what any of those things mean but one thing i did pick up on pretty quickly is it was all about yourself it was just all about me and that god exists to make me happy there's kind of this vague general sense of god but it's all about me at the end of the day and I may be totally out on a limb here, limb here by myself, but coming through the Christmas holiday season, kind of in, in what it is, it's celebrations and 
lots of good food and lots of good drink and, and you know, and, and gifts and all of this stuff. I'm just kind of on a me hangover. Like, I'm just tired of, of living for my own joy, my own satisfaction, my own fulfillment, my own, you know, happiness, whatever it looks like. And what Paul is saying here is there is actually a different way to live. And it's a better way, and it's the way of living in the reality of God's grace that we don't have to live for ourselves. That there is a way of living in which we live to please God, and we live in the reality of His pleasure, and it actually is, it ends up changing us. It ends up being a life of joy and gladness. And that's kind of the bigger scope of what Paul's talking about in Philippians, is this life of, of following Jesus is the joyful life. Friends, it is the good life. It's the life you want. It just may not be on the path that you naturally thought it would come on. And it brings joy and gladness. God's pleasure is like the sun. It's like the sun. And there's two aspects to the sun. There's this objective reality that we know about the sun. We know that the sun is hot and the sun is bright and the sun is warm and all that stuff. We know that. We learned that in school. We learned about it in seventh grade, earth science, all that kind of stuff. We know all of those things about the sun. Just like many of us know lots of things about God. We, we know God loves us because he kind of is supposed to because of the Jesus thing and that obligates him to love us. We know that God is good because that's what the Bible says. But there is this whole other side to the sun, this whole other side to God that I, I struggle to believe at times. And it's the subjective reality of walking out into the sun and experiencing its warmth. Of letting the rays beam down on you and bring light and life and joy. Friends, some of us need to step out into a life of not living for ourselves, but of living for God's good pleasure. Living in the, in the reality of the pleasure that's already there if you're in Christ Jesus. He is already smiling on you. It's like Blake's been saying all morning. Just the reality that God already loves you through Christ. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to make him like you. We don't have to make the sun come up. It's already there. It's a reality that is true. But there is a whole manner in which we can step into that and begin to enjoy the pleasure of God's smile. And that is through following Him. That is through engaging in what He is already doing in our own hearts. It's growing up in the grace with which we have received. The, uh, the second half of that hymn from Jesus on my cross of taken says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. That's right, we've been talking about that. Think that God is already at work in you. Think that the Father's smiles are yours. They're thine. Jesus already has done everything for you. God already loves you. He's pleased with you. To will and work for His good pleasure. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, can thou repine? Or in other words, can you turn back? Friends, this new year, as you seek to hopefully live for Jesus in whatever way that looks like for you. Hopefully in all of your life, you have to remember what's true of you in the gospel. You have to remember that God is at work and you have to believe that promise. And trust that living for His pleasure and not your own is where joy in life is found. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that there's an objective reality that's already yours. 
And we are simply stepping out in faith into the subjective experience of God's grace. Look, God is already pleased with you. And we now seek to grow up in that grace and begin to experience the smile of Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make the reality of our salvation increasingly apparent to us. And I pray that that we would work out our salvation in reverence and awe of you, just an absolute awe that you would want anything to do with us, much less love us and sing over us and be delighted in us. I pray that that would change us, Father, that that would free us up from the sins that we have clung to. I pray that would allow us to move forward in joy and in thanksgiving for what you have already done and what you are doing and what you will do. We love you. We thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.